Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Financial and investment decisions always involve trade-offs. No matter how many times you rejig your spreadsheet, you can't have it all. Spend versus save, risk versus return. Hard choices for anyone to make. Today, we look at five trade-offs every investor has to face. And in today's dumb question of the week, is it better to overpay your mortgage or invest? Okay, let's get into it. So before we spend the next half an hour talking about trade-offs, Romin, maybe we should clarify, what do we mean by a trade-off? Well, whenever you're deciding to do something, it doesn't really matter what it is, there'll be certain constraints. And usually you have kind of conflicting aims. So that might be things like how much risk you take versus how much return you want to generate. And if you have too much of one, it can sacrifice the other one. And when we think about our finances, maybe the first thing everyone has to face before they even get to the question of investments is the balance of spending versus saving. And recently I've done some content on the FIRE movement, the financial independence retire early movement. Now, when returns were incredible for equity, suddenly it seemed as if retirement at the age of, say, 40 or even 30 was a possibility. But of course, now those goals have become much more distant because in order to get there, you simply have to save huge amounts of money. And for many people, that's just not going to be within reach. So I think you have to be realistic about your own lifestyle and the kind of sacrifices you're willing to make today for benefits in the future. You know, people always say jam today or jam tomorrow. And what flavour jam? Obviously damson, that's my favourite. <laughs> but look, I think people have to be realistic when it comes to spending versus saving. And if you are saving a huge proportion of your salary, obviously you're going to have to make sacrifices. And I think if you're 20, you should be enjoying life, you know, while you're still able to. <laughs> Roman, I got so into the fire movement at one point in my 20s, I was saving 50% of my income. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, I did. I really did. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did it work? Are you happy with it now? Well, it did pay off in a way. I didn't get to the point where, you know, I'm never going to have to work again. But I got to the point where I have a bit more freedom to spend my time as I wish. For a while, until the money runs out. <laughs> so what we're basically talking about here is delayed gratification, right? And weighing up, would you rather have something which generates a bit of excitement now, or would you rather have when you're old? And it really is a, a trade-off in the most basic sense. And the trade-off is especially stark because everything you save and invest will compound over the years. So the opportunity cost of not investing early on really is massive. So for example, if you assumed a real return on your investments of 7%, which is roughly realistic, right? In terms of historic terms of the stock market. Yeah, that's plausible. What that means as a rule of thumb is your investments double every 10 years. So when you're thinking about it, do I spend that £100 now or do I invest it? Well, if you invest it on average after 10 years, that 100 is going to be 200. You wait 20 years, it's going to be 400. You wait 30 years, then 40 years, eventually it grows to £1,600. So, you know, you've got £100 now or £1,600 when you retire, if you're 25 at the moment. But the cruel thing is that when we're young, we don't earn much money. That's the problem. You know, usually it ramps up until you're around mid-40s. That's usually peak earning age. Yeah, and it's also the marginal utility of the money is much greater when you're young, right? Warren Buffett has a quote which sums up nicely his scepticism over too much delayed gratification, where he basically says, if you keep waiting to live until your retirement, that's basically like trying to save up sex for your old age. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah. You don't want to go down that route, do you? You want to live a good life throughout. It's all about balance. That's the hard thing. 
I mean, I think when it comes to spending, for example, the key is intentional spending. Like it's fine to spend lavishly, really, on the things that really do improve your quality of life and bring you happiness and joy. But the problem is when we just spend without thinking on nonsense, which doesn't really do anything for our life. And it's so easy to do that. And some habits, you know, I mean, they're actually destructive to your health at the same time as being very expensive. And, you know, I'm thinking about smoking. And if I had to choose between smoking and drinking, I'd definitely go for drinking. <laughs> I'd go for cheese. <laughs> or cheese. I mean, I've got an apple problem. <laughs> an apple problem? Hardcore. Well, it's brilliant because where we live now, we've got a local dealer that uh, I go to almost every day to get my apples. Initially, they just laughed because they said, oh, you're here again. <laughs> <laughs> but they had coxes, you know, like new season coxes. So that was even better. So you're saying you've got a cox problem? Oh, yeah, that's the problem at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to work with a colleague who earned pretty good money, but had this real addiction, I would say, to buying clothes on ASOS and other stories and all these shops. And every month in the sort of week before payday, she'd be like scrimping and saving to try and get through to the next paycheck. Well, I just thought, that's crazy. You're earning so much money. <laughs> like, How do you get into that position? Like you want to be in the position where you don't even know when payday is. Yeah, I mean, I never really knew when payday was, to be honest. A lot of the stuff just came out of my account, straight into the mortgage and all the other yeah. household expenditure. If you're running it so close to the line, when you're earning good money, something's gone wrong somewhere. Now, the thing is, I've always had quite a frugal lifestyle. But I think understanding how much you can save is also important. You know, having an idea of roughly what your budget is. I mean, you don't have to budget down to the penny, but having an idea of how much you can afford to spend is also useful. And for many people, that's difficult. For example, it might be a difficult discussion with your partner about how much you should be spending or how much you can afford to spend. Definitely. And I also think not all spending is equal, right? Some spending is more like an investment. For example, if you're spending on education, like uh, masters for yourself or some school fees for your children, yeah, that's spending, but it's also going to hopefully bring a monetary reward maybe further down the line. So it's very hard to weigh up that versus putting money in the market. Even if you're just concerned about return on capital, it's hard, but especially when you consider like the enjoyment of doing a degree and the intellectual stimulation of it. And usually these things come with unexpected benefits. It's difficult to judge at the time that you're doing the education how useful it'll be later on. But I've never found that stuff I've spent time learning hasn't been useful later on. Even really odd things like Latin. You know, I never thought I'd use Latin, but when I came into gardening, understanding all the plant names was just natural. So if you see Hirsutus as the name of a plant, you know, as its second part of its name, you know, it's hairy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess my point is that, you know, even things like physics, where I never thought I'd use physics later on, I use it all the time. The maths from physics comes into my daily work. And I thought I would never have to use my music degree. And I didn't until I did this podcast and I have to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> Very well. So yeah, I think it's worthwhile making those investments, even if you can't see the immediate benefit. Yeah. And just coming back to the idea of everyday spending and your budget and things like that. Some people say the way to approach it is to pay yourself first. Have you heard this, Roman? Where nope. get your paycheck and then the first thing you do is allocate your desired amount of your investments and it comes out first. It's not that you spend all your money from your budget and then whatever's left goes into your investments. It's That's the first thing at the top. Okay, I think that kind of makes sense because then you know exactly how much you've got to spend. It becomes a priority, right? You pay yourself first. You're investing for your future. Yeah, and it does seem more concrete to do it that way. 
rather than spending and then seeing what you've got left over. Yeah. You know, at least you kind of prioritize it automatically. Well, that brings us nicely onto the second trade-off. We now know how much we're saving each month and have available to invest. But what do we invest in? And the trade-off here is between risk and return. It's the classic, really, isn't it? And I think people kind of misunderstand the asymmetry between the two. If you have low risk, you definitely have a low return. You know, that's kind of like a law. Yeah, and if someone's promising you low risk and high return, it's a scam. Definitely, 100%. (laughs) It's guaranteed, yeah. However, if you dial up the risk, it doesn't necessarily mean that you get higher return. That's the asymmetry. Because what happens is it becomes much more volatile, your investments. With a higher return, your investment capital becomes more crashy. And that means that at certain points of time, it's going to dip well below the initial investment, certainly over short horizons. So what you're saying is taking a higher risk obviously doesn't guarantee a higher return. That's the meaning of the word risk, right? But it gives you the potential for a higher return. Yeah. And there, time becomes much more important because higher volatility with higher average return is still okay. So you don't need to be scared of volatility if you are going to be invested for a long period of time. But if you do need the money in a certain period of time, which is fairly short, well, suddenly risk becomes your enemy. Risk also becomes your enemy. If you don't know your own psychology very well, you get these drawdowns, as you say, there's going to be a crash. We know there's going to be a crash, maybe every 10 years or so, you're going to have to handle a 30% drop, maybe a 40 or a 50% drop. If you panic and sell your investments at that time, you'd have been better off not investing to begin with. Yeah, you shouldn't have ever gotten into the game. And I think that's the problem. Many people discover that they have a low risk appetite after markets crash, when really you should have thought, you know, let me imagine losing 50%. What would I do? It's hard to imagine though, isn't it? Because we all think it's going to go well. (laughs) It is hard. And we all always think that we'll behave properly. You know, if you say to someone, you're not going to sell if it falls, are you? No, 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 no. (laughs) You have this conversation all the time, I bet, with people. Of course. You know, it is human nature and you shouldn't feel bad about it because we all feel that way. The trouble is if it happens in retirement, I think that's when people become justifiably worried. And there are certain things you can do. So after a crash, there are things called guardrails where you actually spend less and that way you deplete the pot much less rapidly. And really, that's the problem. If you're consuming the investment pot after a crash, that's when it kind of compounds the losses. Because some people say the best way to do this is just to ignore the news, the investing chat, the sort of daily returns and all that. But then we don't do that, Roman, do we? We're kind of obsessed by the market and what we do. And I think what it allows me to do is understand why the market's going down, why it's crashing. So then it doesn't seem so scary to me. It's like, oh, I know it's doing something for a reason. And people say that fear is essentially about things which are unknown. And if you understand something, it's less scary. I'm not sure that's completely true. (laughs) Really? I think it is true. You know, if you're going to the dentist and you know they're going to cause you pain, I mean, you kind of understand it. But maybe even the dentist metaphor is a good one because you know that eventually it's going to pass and you'll feel okay. Whereas if you're a little kid, you know, you can't see that the pain's going to be short-lived. And similarly with investment, if you know that it's a temporary dip in markets and things will eventually recover, that's very comforting, I think. So coming back to risk versus return, what do we actually mean by that? How do we measure it, for example, and compare different investments and their sort of risk returniness? Well, the easy one is return. You know, it's just how much percentage wise you gain. You put a pound in, you take 10 pounds out, you can work out a percentage gain if you know the period of time it was invested for. Risk is trickier because there what you're talking about is not meeting a goal. I'd say that's the real risk. 
with investment. What are your goals? What's the chance of not meeting them? Now, volatility is what people often use as a risk measure, which seems a little bit odd. Firstly, it's statistical, so people don't like it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the real trade-off we've got here. We can get into the maths of it, but half our audience's eyes are going to glaze over (laughs) and be like, what is this nerd on about now? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the thing about volatility is it's the typical percentage price move of an asset. So let me tell you that something like cash would have an annual percentage price move, which is very close to zero. You put a pound into the bank, and you'll take a pound out a year later with a little bit of interest. So the volatility is almost zero. Whereas with cryptocurrency, if you put money into that, you could easily have a volatility of 100%. So it could double, it could go very close to zero in a single year. So that's the difference between the two. Now, which one would you invest in? Well, if you need the money in a year's time, say you want to buy a house, would you put your deposit into cryptocurrency? Robin, I wouldn't put my money into cryptocurrency if I didn't need it for a thousand years' time. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, that's the trade-off. That's what volatility means and feels like. And if you've got something which is much more volatile, the chance of a shortfall is much higher because it's more crashy. And I think there's a nice measure called Roy's Safety First Criterion, which actually looks at that chance of a shortfall. So let's say that you need £100 in a year's time. You could say, well, I've got two possible investments. You know, one's going to give me 10% return. The other one only gives me 8% return. But if the 10% return comes with twice the volatility, well, by Roy's safety first criterion, you'd favour the one which has slightly less return. So this is a measure of risk-adjusted return, isn't it? It's looking at the probability of getting your minimum required return. And one of the tools I just launched on our website actually does this. So it looks at Monte Carlo sampling. So you tell it the volatility of your investments, your expected return, and how long you'll be investing for. And it tells you the chance of the shortfall. So I think that's really useful. Yeah. Because the probability is really important. If you're investing in something which is very volatile, like a single stock, you know, the chance of a shortfall is much higher, even though you expect the return to be higher on that investment. Yeah, people often talk about the danger of reaching for return, don't they? And sort of taking on more risk than you ever meant to. And some people just don't need that much risk at all. I speak to a lot of people where they've basically won. They've beaten the bank and (laughs) they've got enough to retire on and short of a kind of nuclear strike. You know, I mean, what's going to go wrong? They just don't need to take much risk. And yet they're still talking about buying single stocks, about doing factor investing. And I realise that it's just because it's fun. So I say, look, you know, do it, but you don't need to. They can simply squirrel it away in very safe investments. As long as it beats inflation long term, they're fine. And the risk adjusted return measure you hear more about when you're comparing different funds and ETFs. Is generally the sharp ratio. Should we just clarify what this is? Because it's quite similar to the Roy's safety first criterion you just mentioned. Well, the thing that confuses people about sharp ratio, the only thing that really makes it complex is it looks at excess return. What that means is you subtract the risk-free rate. And the risk-free rate would be whatever the central bank rate is, for example, or maybe short-dated government bonds. Some people use 10-year government bonds. So again, there's a level of subjectivity here, but Essentially, you subtract that risk-free return from the return on your asset. So that's called the excess return. And then you're kind of weighing that up against the volatility of the asset? The volatility of the excess returns, yeah. The denominator tells you how floppy the investment in, how risky, that's bad, so you want that to be small. And the numerator, the thing that goes on top, you want to be big. You know, it's the excess return, how much it's returning above the risk-free rate. 
Lots of return, little risk. But to put it in English <laughs> rather than maths, <laughs> the Sharpe ratio is basically helping to explain whether those excess returns you're generating are due to, you know, smart investment decisions, what we might call alpha, or whether they're just down to taking more risk or just luck, right? That's what we're trying to get a handle on here. Yeah, because even a squirrel could make money in a bull market. You always use squirrels. Why do you hate squirrels so much? Because <laughs> Teddy hates them. So if we look back to 2020, I'm not saying that Kathy Wood is a squirrel, but I'm saying that <laughs> if you take a highly concentrated, leveraged bet during a bull market, you're going to do incredibly well. But of course, if you risk adjust it, then the leverage kind of cancels out the return. So that's a nice way to compare. You can say, how many units of risk did you take to generate these number of units of return? And really skilled managers will be able to generate high returns with fairly small risks. Yeah, so ultimately, the higher the sharp ratio, the more likely they're a good manager rather than a risky or lucky manager. The chance of them being a good manager is higher. They could still be lucky. <laughs> yeah. Even if you're good, you've got to be lucky though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that always seems a little bit strange to me about these risk-adjusted return measures is they're looking at, like you say, the standard deviation of the volatility. But that's on both the upside and the downside. Now, if I'm thinking about risk as an investor, I don't care about the upside volatility. It can go upwards with as much volatility as it wants. <laughs> what I care about is the volatility going down. And the returns, if you look at the returns on any investment, the shock, I mean, I was kind of shocked when I first plotted it for the stock market, is that it's almost symmetric. The upside is almost the same as the downside. And it does look a little bit like a bell shape, but it is slightly shifted to the right. And that's why you get positive return over the long term. But on a given day, you could almost flip a coin to see whether it goes up or down. But there is something which measures this asymmetry and only looks at the downside, and that's called the Sortino ratio. So what you do is you only look at the harmful returns, the negative ones, below your desired return, and that's what goes into your risk calculation. And people could say, well, that's a much better risk measure because that's what people care about, it's losses. But I don't think it's that useful because if you actually plot the returns of any asset, it is roughly symmetric. There's only a slight asymmetry, which ensures that long-term returns are positive. So what you're saying is the upside volatility and downside volatility kind of match each other, more or less. Yeah, for almost any investment, the upside and downside volatility are very similar. But intuitively, people just want a measure that measures their pain. Yeah. But there is a measure, isn't there, which just measures pain. I've heard you mention it before. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a kind of psychological measure. This is the ulcer index, because we always anchor our investments based on the recent all-time high. You know, we don't think, oh, we were up 2,000%. We think I'm down 50% from the recent peak last year. Yeah. So that's what this measure uses. It looks at the drawdowns. It measures their depth and their duration. And any asset which has deep and long drawdowns gets a really high score on the ulcer index. Yeah, because it's much harder to hold and you're going to get more stomach ulcers. Like Japan, right? You know, we often mention the fact that Japan's still in drawdown and that's got a pretty big ulcer index as a result. Yeah, I think the ulcer index is probably the one to look at, right, for the average investor. Unless you're the kind of person that can just see through the volatility and you don't anchor on the recent all-time high. That does cover some of the people I speak to, or at least that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other thing about risk and return is it's probably best to look at it in the round, right, for your whole portfolio and the way different assets interact with each other. Yeah, I think it's important not to focus on the things which have lost money. 
you know, if you have got a measure which looks at the whole portfolio, it'll stop you doing that. And you mentioned single stocks and the risk that comes with those kind of concentrated investments. The way everyone talks about to manage risk and mitigate it is broad diversification, isn't it? Which brings us on to another trade-off, really, because you can just buy, you know, the whole market, every stock out there pretty much in an index fund. But the trade-off here is you now own everything. You own the tobacco companies, you own the oil companies, and you might not be happy about that. So there's a trade-off between your personal ethics, whatever they may be, and the diversification of your portfolio. And it's always odd to see people outside Vanguard's offices claiming that there's something wrong with the ethics of Vanguard or BlackRock's office, when in fact they just own everything. So in a sense, yeah, they do fund indirectly things like oil companies. But they also fund, you know, butterflies and angels and happy squirrels. Yeah, this is it. (laughs) So it's not like the Empire in Star Wars. It's more like a combination of the Empire and the Rebellion all in one go. Yeah, it's really just taking a neutral view, isn't it, and saying... I'm agnostic about anything ethical, and I'm just buying everything in the market waiting. And what's odd at the moment is that actually things which are non-ESG are a fairly small percentage of the overall index. If you look at ESG funds, they have a big tilt towards things like tech, because tech is considered usually to be fairly ethical, and energy only makes up a small percentage of indices. So I think if you buy ESG, it doesn't make a lot of difference to the overall weightings. So really, I think it depends on how you go about ESG to see what effect it has on diversification. And we can look at one of the MSCI ESG indices. The returns aren't that different between the ESG index and the parent index. So MSCI World ESG leaders since inception in 2007 has returned 5.58% versus 5.60 for its parent index, which is MSCI World. Yeah, so basically the same return, right, long term. But the difference is, in the short run, they do move about a little bit differently. So over the last year, for example, that ESG fund you mentioned is down just over 20%, whereas the broader MSCI world is down 18%. So there's a 2% difference there. Not huge though, right? Because the way they're constructed, they just cross stuff out. There are certain criteria which they use. So if it's an arms company or an alcohol distribution company, they may choose to knock it out of the index. So you're crossing stuff out. So if you look at the parent index, which is the MSCI All Country World Index, that's got about 2,900 stocks in it. The Acqui ESG leaders has only got 1,200. So it has crossed out a lot of companies. Which just shows you that, you know, that doesn't make a big difference to the return. As long as it doesn't make up a large proportion of the market cap, I mean, it can change the sector composition of the fund, can't it? It can downweight the energy component, for example, significantly. But it really does depend which ESG fund you were to go for. So I know that some try to keep the balance between sectors in line with the broad index and just sort of pick the best in class from an ESG perspective within each sector. Yeah. And I think others are much more focused on making an impact. So they start from the goals and then they work back to the stock selection. And there, there's a much bigger difference between the global indices and the selections for that index. So, for example, if you look at the MSCI ACQUI, so this is the All Country World Index, Sustainable Impact Index, and the difference here is that it works backwards from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to the allocation. So that would be things like nutritious products, treatment of major diseases, sanitary products, education, and so on. 
So here you would expect the deviation from the parent index, which is MSCI Acqui, to be huge, and it was. So 2021, when everybody was buying into meme stocks, MSCI Acqui was up by 18.5%, and this sustainable impact index was down by minus one. I'm going to call it an unsustainable impact fund. (laughs) (laughs) But in 2020, it was up by 45% and Acqui was only up by 16. Yes, it's a different beast. You're not buying an index fund here, in my view. You're taking a massive tilt. If you're happy with that, you know, I think it would be a suitable index for more people because it really takes a strong stand in terms of what it buys. But you've got to buy one that's in line with your own ethics if you're going down this route. If you're saying index funds in the broad sense aren't for me because I just don't want to be associated with certain types of industry, then there really are literally hundreds of different ESG funds. There's some which are excluding controversial weapons, some which are excluding fossil fuels. There are some which are faith-based in line with different religions and their ethics. There are some which focus on women's leadership. There's like just a whole range of things, right? Yeah, I think ultimately we'll come to a world where there's custom indexing and this stuff, you know, it's just a matter of complete subjectivity. So you just choose what you want and the index will be constructed based on your beliefs. But we're not quite there yet. I mean, I don't know if all this ESG investing makes a real difference, right, when it comes to capital allocation. Maybe you could say, okay, investment in fossil fuels has been lower over the last decade than it otherwise would have been. Potentially, I don't know if that's the ESG effect or if that's just the sort of macro situation we were in. But my view, I think for me, it's best to stay indexed to the broad market based on market cap. And then if I want to make charitable donations to certain causes, maybe that's a more effective way of doing it. Yeah, I'm not convinced that the secondary market, which is essentially what you're buying, is going to make a huge difference to the companies themselves. One thing I noticed over the last five or 10 years before the pandemic was that ESG funds were doing well, right? Because the energy sector was having a tough time of it and they were kind of outperforming the index. And so what people started saying was there is no trade-off here. Even if you're just focused on the best return, you would buy ESG anyway. Now, I don't think that's true to say there's no trade-off. There is a trade-off when you're moving away from the broad index. And we've started to see that play out now, right, with the energy sector coming back into fashion. And if you strip out the energy sector, as many people did with the SG funds this year, you're already in an earnings recession. So for the US, the S&P 500 has had two successive quarters of profits falling once you strip out the energy sector. So really, that's what's effectively kept the US afloat when it comes to fundamentals. Yeah, I think it's just a thing to be aware of, isn't it? When people say there is no trade-off, they're probably just missing something. Or it's been a period when the trade-off wasn't visible. Yeah. And suddenly it is visible now. So we've been talking a lot about index funds and how they're kind of the reliable, dependable way of taking risk. But Romin, they are boring, aren't they? So there's a trade-off here between this reliability and just excitement. Yeah, they are boring. And, (laughs) you know, I like them because of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to suit everyone. But like you were saying earlier, the people who, even if they've done really well, they've beaten the game and they don't need to take risk, they still want to take risk, right? It's kind of in our human nature for some people. And some people see that as the primary goal of investment. And I think that's the mistake. But having some excitement, that's not a problem. You know, I think that's why this core satellite approach is a good one, which is that, you know, your core is boring, safe index funds. And then you have a bit of fun with all the dodgy stuff. So you're saying you've got a satellite portfolio of dodgy stuff, which is 10% of your portfolio. 10% fun allocation. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's the maximum fun we're allowed. (laughs) Maximum fun I'm allowed, I've got to say. You know, I mean, other people, it'll be different. But small enough that if you get it badly wrong, it's not going to essentially destroy your retirement. 
yeah, it could go badly wrong, but it also could go unexpectedly well, right? And you would have to have the discipline that when your fun allocation rises from 10% to 50%, because you've brought something that's done really well, to bring it back into line, right? To rebalance it. I know you've never had this problem, Roman, but some people <laughs> probably have. <laughs> Chance would be a fine thing. In fact, you know, I've been pretty cautious in the fund portfolio as well. But do you know what I mean? Like there's a temptation to let it run. But what you've done there, you've built a much more risky overall portfolio than you ever intended because you've done so well. Yeah, look, I was speaking to people about nine months ago. So this is before the end of 2021. They say, look, I put a bit into crypto and look, it's now like this percentage of my portfolio. And I was saying, look, maybe you should think about de-risking. It's been great returns, but now you've got a pretty big risk. And this is now a much bigger part of your portfolio. Because the point is, if it falls massively and your portfolio comes back down, you're not going to think, oh, it was only my fun bit anyway. You're going to think, oh, right. I just lost half my portfolio. <laughs> I just hope that some of the people did do that because, you know, obviously we've had catastrophic losses for some cryptocurrencies. But I think that makes sense. I think keeping the excitement in check is a good idea. And let's be honest, it's not just excitement that we're trading off here, is it? It's also, you don't learn much, right? If you just invest in index funds and never even look at the rest of it. Now, maybe you don't care. I mean, you don't have to be interested in finance, right? If you just want to meet your long-term goals, index funds might be a good way to do that. But for those of us who are intellectually curious about finance and investing, you learn much more if you put a little bit of skin in the game, a small amount <laughs> in the stuff where you can see the different risks at work. I think you learn different stuff. So, for example, indices are affected by macroeconomics. So you'd still be very interested in the macro if you're buying, say, a Japanese index fund versus something like a US fund. You know, the macro there is really important. But, you know, if you're buying single stocks, you have to understand all sorts of different stuff. So, for example, if you buy an electric car stock like Tesla, you'll learn about EVs. You'll learn about battery tech. You'll learn about the commodities that feed into that industry. You learn about energy density for the batteries. You know, all this kind of interesting stuff that all kind of feeds into it. And also the competition. What's Volkswagen doing? What are Chinese manufacturers doing at the same time? Maybe you'll understand about balance sheets. You know, you'll look at the sales growth, that kind of thing. So there's so much you learn from single stock investing if you dig into it. Because we've said before that you tend to learn best from your mistakes, right? And it's hard to make mistakes if you're just buying, say, the global stock market through an index fund. In my view, at least, any money you put into that, basically at any time, because we think you can't do market timing, is a fine decision. Yeah. But if you're going to single stocks, you're going to make mistakes all the time. Even the best investors make probably as many mistakes as they make good picks. And you're more engaged, I think. You're going to read the news reports about it. And if you see the news reports talking about your stock, you get really excited. I suppose it's like following a football team, although I wouldn't know about that. That is the danger, though, is that you get too attached to these stocks you've bought when they're doing well and you treat it like a football team or a religion. And many people get sucked in and, you know, you get married to a stock, you can't sell it when it goes down. All of the cognitive biases are much more prevalent, I think, when it comes to single stock investing. Which brings us to our fifth and final trade-off of the day, which I didn't quite know what to call, but I think it makes sense, is liquidity versus lifestyle choices. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that a house, if you buy a house, it's very illiquid. It takes time and money to sell it. It's not like buying and selling a stock. But you can live in a house, <laughs> which is an advantage <laughs> and something a lot of people like from their lifestyle. So there's this trade-off between liquidity and how you actually want to live. The other thing is like pension contributions. 
they're locked away until you're 65, but they're very tax efficient. So there's this trade-off here with liquidity. And a lot of people now are talking about things like private equity, where you may have a lock-in period, or things like venture capital trusts, where again, you've got a lock-in period, which isn't actually enforced, except that you don't get a big tax break unless you stay with it for five years. So again, you know, this liquidity versus lifestyle choice kicks in. I, I like the category. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, the reason the government offers such good tax breaks for pension contributions or 401ks in the US, for instance, is because people don't want to lock their money away for so long, right? So you've got to make it really enticing. And in a way, it takes away the optionality from your point of view, because you don't have a choice. So I think for some people, these are a great way to ensure that they have the right mindset, because by definition, the structure forces you to look at long-term returns and see through the volatility. And I think houses and mortgages kind of enforce that good behavior, if you like, for the average person. So your mortgage payment comes out of your paycheck every month, right? You don't have a choice about whether to pay your mortgage or not. And it's kind of enforced saving. And also, if the housing market crashes, you're probably not tempted to sell your house at the wrong time. People know not to do that. And also the conversations with your partner are different than if the stock market crashed and you lost a lot of wealth where they might be tempted to sell. But I think the important thing to recognize is that there is a real trade-off here. This liquidity constraint is real. Because you could need the money. I mean, it might be that there's a life event. You might get divorced, you might develop an illness, and you suddenly do need the capital. And you can't get those pension contributions back, not for a while. And if you're getting divorced and you need to sell your house, if that just happens to be at the same time as a market crash, oh no. So you have to be careful when you invest in these illiquid things. You've got to ensure that you've got enough liquidity to see you through those kind of crises. Now, I mentioned one of those tools that we recently launched on our website membership, which allows you to work out the uncertainty of your future returns. But also, once you're in drawdown, whether you're going to run out of money. If you want to learn more about our membership and how you can get access to those tools, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Is it better to overpay your mortgage or invest? Now, this is a dilemma, I think, that comes up for a lot of people. And I think it's always good to start with the obvious stuff. So really what we're talking about in economic terms is can you generate a higher return on your capital net of tax when you invest it compared to the saving in interest payments when you pay off mortgage, which is effectively tax free? Yeah, so at its heart, it's a simple mathematical problem, right? But the trouble is the return you're generating from your investments isn't guaranteed, whereas the return you effectively generate from overpaying your mortgage is guaranteed. You're just saving whatever you would have paid out in interest on that portion of your mortgage. Although there is a degree of uncertainty, for example, in the UK, where we have these short fixes for our interest payments, they may go up to a much higher rate in the future. So there is a degree of uncertainty for the UK. In the US, much less so. We have 30-year fixed mortgages. But you also don't know what your circumstances will be in future. So as with all these things, what seems simple on the face of it is actually incredibly complex. And psychology comes into it too. Yeah, I think a lot of people would think there is a psychological benefit to paying off your mortgage, even if it's not mathematically optimal, because you could generate 7 or 8% on the stock market versus your 4% interest rate or whatever it might be. Before I knew about investment early on, you know, when I just got married and we just had our first child, I was kind of obsessed with paying off the mortgage. I thought that was the be all and end all of having excess income. But if only I'd known about investing, I would have been better off just investing that money at the time. Yeah. 
But then just speaking personally, I do have a strong aversion to carrying debt or at least too much debt. There's something about it I just don't like. I like the security of knowing that something is mine, right? It can't be taken away from me. Yeah, I almost imagined a kind of water level on our house, you know, as I kind of paid off more of the mortgage. You know, you think, oh, I own more of the house now, as if that matters. But now that I'm older, you know, I think of things differently. You know, after a divorce, you realise, well, we never really owned the house anyway, and we had to move out as it turned out. So everything is, in a sense, temporary and in flux. So you never truly own a place. You're only ever the guardian. And ultimately, you're going to have to pop your clocks and move on anyway. So, you know, I see things very differently now. And in retrospect, what I would have done if I could travel back in time is put more into markets. But you didn't have that kind of existential Zen viewpoint at the time. Well, no, I had this kind of illusion that it was my garden and it was my house. You know, I just thought... They're my apples, goddammit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had apple trees. So there's a couple of other considerations here, which is that overpayments that you make on your mortgage are generally illiquid. You can't get them back out without remortgaging unless you have one of these offset mortgages where you can sort of play about with it a bit more. Whereas your investments are typically liquid if you're investing in stocks or bonds or something like that. So that's something that's in favour of investing, right? What you mentioned earlier, the tax situation is different. So overpaying your mortgage is effectively tax-free, whereas investing might carry taxes and higher fees. You can get around some of the taxes if you're investing through an ISA or a SIP or whatever the tax wrapper might be, but the fees are going to be there. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. And I guess at the moment, things have changed a lot because interest rates have increased. So for many people, the decision about whether to invest in markets or overpay the mortgage suddenly becomes much more in favour of overpaying the mortgage. Oh yeah, if you've got a 6% interest rate, then that's not far off the expected return of the stock market long term, is it? Yeah, that's right. So suddenly it becomes much less of a (laughs) no-brainer. Unless you're overpaying to such an extent that you start paying fees, I've always thought that's um, maybe not the best way to go about it. Yeah, the penalties can really negate the benefits of the overpayment. There is one other potential benefit of overpaying your mortgage, especially in the UK where we have these short two-year or five-year fixes and we come up and we renew the mortgage at a new rate which is that if you overpay, you could improve the loan-to-value ratio on your property by such an extent that you tick over like a threshold and you go from like, I don't know, over the 75% threshold or the 60% threshold and you get a relatively better interest rate. Yeah, I certainly think that makes a difference. If you look at the Bank of England's loan rates based on LTV, when we had the big blowout recently, it was a huge difference between, say, a 90% LTV mortgage and something like 70 So I guess to summarise the question of, is it better to overpay your mortgage or invest? Well, there's a few things to consider, isn't it? There's the mathematics of it, and there's calculators online where you can put in some assumptions and see which, in theory, is going to give you the better financial payoff. There's the psychological benefit, potentially, of having a lower mortgage. But why does it even have to be either or, Romin? Well, for many people, it's not. You know, they choose to do both. And that's probably the better way of doing it, because you don't know what's going to happen to interest rates in future. They could come down again. You know, nobody seems to think so at the moment, but, you know, why not? It could happen. And the other thing to mention, which we haven't mentioned at all, is diversification, right? It's hard to imagine something less diversified than a house. One house on one street, in one location, with one set of neighbours. In one currency. (laughs) In one currency, right? Whereas, at least if you're doing the investment option, you can take a little bit of risk out of the UK (laughs) or wherever you might live. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. 
And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.